Hello, everybody. Hope you're doing well. I'm going to continue on today with walking through my trip to Israel. And uh, it's gone a little bit longer than I thought it would. It's taking more time than I thought it originally was going to. But um, I've really enjoyed it. And I'm, I'm just trying to not leave anything out that might be of interest to people. And so far, the response has been pretty good back. So um, I'm just going to keep on going and hope that uh, it continues to be something that you enjoy listening to. I know a lot of people listening have are the people that went to Israel with me and they like listening back. So hello to all of you. Um, but for those of you that were not with me, uh, didn't take the trip or haven't been before, hopefully this is something that's still painting a picture in your head. Uh, before we get started, though, I do want to give one update and answer two questions. Uh, the second question is kind of going to lead us into our episode today. Uh, the update is that uh, I started this project, Truth Be Told, as a podcast, and even though I did do some video stuff, um, specifically with interviews that I'd love to do more of as time goes on, um, the podcast has kind of been the bread and butter of Truth Be Told, and that's still going to probably be the case, but uh, with how popular video is lately, I've decided to start my own YouTube channel as well that won't just be podcast episodes, but it'll actually be me um, speaking to the camera and um, probably minimal editing because you don't really need too much editing, but um, yeah, I just, I felt like it was another kind of avenue to get people to see or hear this content, so, um, and it really didn't take that much more work than I'm doing already to put the podcast together, so I'll be doing both, and um, there'll obviously be some overlap as well, so it would really help me out if you went over to that page, it's um, Truth Be Told YouTube is the the page name, might be a little difficult to find because doesn't have a lot of subscribers right now, and Truth Be Told YouTube typically brings up Matthew West's song, Truth Be Told, um, but I'll post the link um, below as well, so wherever you're listening to or watching this, the link should be uh, posted in the information, so I'd really appreciate it if you'd follow that, if you've ever thought, man, Truth Be Told would be so great if I could just look at Micah's face, well, this is exactly for you, I'm not sure who that person would be that thought that, but this is for you. Uh, so there's a YouTube channel, and that should be, I'll post once a week there, just short little videos, so hope you guys like that. Um, as far as the questions I received, one question um, was about my note-taking process when I was actually in Israel. So these are questions that are based off of these episodes uh, specifically. And someone asked me, like, well, what did you do to take notes? This is a person that's well-traveled, and they go to different places, and they were offering encouragement of, of the episodes and everything, which is great. But my answer was um, pretty much, you know, it was just, it was a good question. I thought, you know, I should maybe address it on here. Um, I do think that note taking is important, but I sometimes I find that it can hinder me, you know, in, in like just paying attention, I guess. I know for a lot of people, taking notes helps them pay attention. For me, I kind of almost have to do it after the fact. Otherwise, I don't know, my attention's kind of lost in getting every word down and then I'm not actually retaining anything. And I know that I rarely go back and study the notes. So um, typically what I tried to do in Israel was I only wrote notes like towards the end of the day. Um, if I was like laying in bed studying for the next day, trying to see where we were going, I would go over the current day and just write out little notes of where we were, where we had toured that day and little things I wanted to remember. And it kind of came in three steps. The first, first step was what are the things that I immediately took away um, without any like reflection or anything? Just what did I take from the day? The second was what have I heard people talking about? So what did they take from the day? What were the things that they found interesting? And this is, that's really helped with things like this that I'm doing now uh, with this, with this podcast. Um, and then the third thing was upon reflection of myself, uh, you know, all my interactions with other people, as well as my, uh, just, you know, your thoughts grow throughout a day. You consider things more deeply and more carefully. So what are my like later thoughts as I've considered the places I've been? And as I, you know, tried to write those things down as much as possible, uh, this is kind of what I did for notes, but I don't think there's any one right way. It's just a question that I got. And so I thought, on the off chance anybody else had it, that's my answer. Uh, the, the second question that I had, and the third thing I want to bring up today, um, someone asked me 
they, they, they said that I mentioned before that, well, Nazareth was such an insignificant place and how do we know that? And how can I assert that, um, you know, with any confidence? And I thought it was a good question because it's tough. There's some things where it's like, even when I'm there, the guides are just saying things, you know, like very dogmatically. And so, or some things that you've learned a long time ago and you're like, well, this has just become common knowledge to me, but it might not just be readily uh, available information to everybody. So that's going to lead us into today because the first place we did go, um, that I haven't covered yet is Nazareth. So if you remember last time, if you want to check out those episodes, I do recommend it. But last time we ended the day, uh, in, uh, Zipporah, or Zipporah or Sephoris, depending on how you say it. And this was like the city set on a hill, a grand, you know, much larger populated, um, kind of more, just higher population, but also like it has a lot of stores and um, wealthy people and has a theater. And so it's a little more built up and it's just across the next hill from Nazareth. And so the whole day our guide was comparing these two places. And when you get to Nazareth, mainly the way that you can tell that these one is small and one is not is the ruins. I mean, you, when you get to Nazareth, there's just not a lot left. There's not a lot there. And they've dug there extensively because, you know, historically, this is the place where Jesus would have lived. And so it's a, it's an important place. And they, you know, the people that live here definitely want to find those things and it, you know, brings some renown to their area. So the better they preserve those things and the more um, study they do into what went on there, the more they can share with people, the more people want to travel there. And they rely very heavily on tourism. So uh, the ruins there in Nazareth are just really, really small and insignificant in comparison to what we saw uh, in Sephoris. So that's one way. Another way that we can back this up is uh, in the Bible. You know, there's one specific verse that keeps coming to mind um, that ended up being kind of an important verse to me as we walked through Nazareth. And that is when Christ kind of comes on the scene early in his ministry, the question is asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And that's actually asked by one of his disciples. So even someone who eventually would follow Christ wholeheartedly, devoting their life to him, initially was really hung up on this idea that nothing good can come out of this little, tiny, insignificant, unimportant city. And so not only is that supported by the archaeology, but it's something that we can see from from scripture. And also, uh, even just the name, Nazareth. So it means branch or, or shoot, and or, or like branch town with eth, meaning the, the town part, and nazar, meaning branch or shoot. And it indicates, that, you know, it's not just a literal, I mean, it is a literal translation, but it's not necessarily only literal, because it could also indicate like small beginnings or, you know, like a branch or like a, a shoot of a plant. It's just small, but it's a start to something. And so you can almost imagine people naming this town and they think, we've got a nice little start here. This could this could grow into something. And then over time, that same name begins to kind of be a mockery to the town itself. I think, you know, in in my town where I'm where I'm at in central Ohio, um, we've got a place called Whitehall just down the road. And the name Whitehall sounds very upstanding and, and clean. It's it's like a very pure kind of name. But then you go to Whitehall and it's a little bit sketchy. So the name kind of takes on an ironic factor over time. And so I kind of think of this when I think of Nazareth or Branchtown or small beginnings. You know, it's something that initially might have been very quaint. And, um, you know, people were like, oh, this is like such a nice place. And maybe the people that live there did love it. But it wasn't of great reputation and it didn't have a great reputation later on. So this name kind of took on a little bit of a, a mocking tone when people referenced it. So even in the name itself, we get a sense that Nazareth was not something, uh, you know, incredibly impressive or significant. It was pretty small and of not great reputation, um, supported by the archaeology, the name, as well as the Bible itself. And the thing that was interesting about this to me, um, our guide you know, as we entered into modern Nazareth, which is actually so much bigger 
than modern Sephoris, he's like, okay, so I know that we're going into kind of a bustling city, but what I need you guys to remember is like, this is not what the first century picture is. We're going from the bustling city in Sephoris to the, you know, rundown, tiny rural village of Nazareth. And so he tried to paint this picture in our minds, but he said, consider this when you think of Jesus, he could have been anybody. I mean, you go to the worst town in your neighborhood and you see any kid on the street and you point to him and say, that could be Jesus. What would it take for you to follow that kid right there? And this is the, this is the thing that's happening with Jesus in the first century. You know, he's um, not a terribly important person from a not terribly important place. And so I think um, it's a credit not only to his miracles and his person, you know, his, his being God, that he was able to, you know, build this following, um, but also a credit to the people that did believe in him, because I know for a fact it would be a hard thing for me to go into Whitehall, pick any kid off the street, and that kid tell me, hey, I'm God, and for me to believe it. Like, that would be a really hard thing. Even if I had all the um, the history that the Jewish people had in looking for a Messiah, I just think, you know, they, they knew where he was going to come from. And Jesus kind of, there's prophecies about him coming out of Egypt and uh, Bethlehem and Nazareth. There's prophecies about all those places. So I understand it could get confusing. Um, but yeah, Nazareth is one of these places that it seems... Um, he easily could have, you know, the Messiah could easily come from this place. And yet still, there would be a hard thing for people um, to look at this town and say, well, I don't know, this prophecy doesn't seem like it'd be fulfilled here now. Maybe the town grows or something. I don't know. And that's, to me, I think that's fascinating because there's a prophecy about the Messiah in Nazareth and yet this isn't a place that's built up even in Jesus's time. It's like they're waiting for Messiah and yet they weren't really ready to receive him at the places that he said he would come. I, I don't know. I just, I find that interesting because you look at like the temple and I mean, they built it up because they believed that the Messiah would come there. And so they were ready to receive him there. But there's other prophecies about places he would be. And it seems like they weren't waiting and this almost played against them when seeing this man from Nazareth of no reputation, from a town of no reputation. And uh, I think they let their own, maybe their own bias get in the way of, you know, what they believed about him. So just something to think about. Um, I took a picture of a little kid on the street in Nazareth because to me it was just like, that's a good reminder. Like, I don't know this kid. He is... Uh, you know, he's going to go about his life and grow up and I might never hear from him again or see him again or anything like that. And yet that's how of no reputation Jesus was in the beginning. So um, just something to think about puts puts him in perspective, I think. So that's, yeah, just something to consider. Um, so what else? What else? What else? Um, we had two things on our agenda in Nazareth because, like I said, it was a small place. Um, it's a big town, but historically and archaeologically, there's not a lot to see. Um, so we had two things on our agenda, and one of them was lunch, um, which seems like a small thing, but it's not in Israel. It was pretty nice, actually. Um, we're walking along this crowded street. It's kind of a little bit dingier. Um, it didn't feel unsafe necessarily, but didn't feel like somewhere I'd like to hang out you know, regularly necessarily either. And we're going along the street up these little uh, hills and there's people all over. And then we turn off into this tiny little hole in the wall. And it's like, this is where we're going to have food for like 50 people. And I just, when you look at the place, you're like, I don't know how we're all going to fit in there. I mean, from the outside, it looks like you might be able to fit 20 people in there, including servers, but somehow it just goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And they fit all of us in there. And it was, it was kind of, I liked the place a lot. Um, it was kind of indicative of a lot of the meals we'd have throughout Israel. Um, a lot of small plates sent around the table. It's not like you order your food and the other person orders their food. It's, they just bring a bunch of food and you kind of pass it around and 
take little bits of this, little bits of that. We had hummus and baba ganoush and shish kebab, like cuts of beef. And we had tabbouleh and rice wrapped in grape leaves and different sauces and always pita. There's pita on every table, every time. Um, and everyone, you know, it was funny. Everyone kept talking the whole trip about how much food we were eating. And wow, it's a good thing we're doing all this walking because we can burn off all this food. I genuinely never felt this. Like when they're passing out these small plates, I never felt like, oh man, I'm starving and I'm not getting enough food. But it was like, you're getting a bite of this and a bite of that and a bite of this. And you know, it's just like, you're kind of tasting more than you are eating a meal, which I think is good. Um, like I said, I, I never felt starving and I, I, I was filled up, but I never felt like, oh man, we're just eating so much. And th all this walking is like the best thing because, um, you know, otherwise we'd just be lazy and we'd just be eating continuously. It's like, no, we ate like maybe twice a day and it was good food for you. You know, it wasn't like you're eating three, like three pizzas. You're eating, you know, very fresh food and Mediterranean style. I don't know. I mean, I just, I never felt like, boy, we better walk all this off. Even though, you know, the walking was fine. It was good. Um, yeah, I just, I never shared that with people, but I heard it constantly. Every time we'd leave lunch, oh man, I'm so full. We've eaten so much. Good thing we're going to walk three miles now because, you know, otherwise we just blow up into balloons. Yeah, I never felt that. I ended up like after the trip, I weighed myself before and after and I lost like 15 pounds. So, it was definitely not a one-for-one one ratio of eating and walking, um, but that's okay. Everyone has their own opinion, but I think across the board, we all enjoyed the food there, so that was nice, um, and then the second thing on our list after lunch was the Church of the Annunciation, and this is really the most important part of seeing Nazareth, um, Annunciation being where it was announced to Mary that she was with child. And that's why all over this church, I think it's interesting, uh, they have little signs or like inscriptions that read like, here the word became flesh. And I, I think that's cool because he wasn't born there, you know, but he was conceived there. He was immaculately conceived at Nazareth. She was told at Nazareth that uh, she would bear a son, which to me is just interesting because it uh, shows the longstanding tradition of Catholic people that they, they should still have that life begins at conception. Uh, I think if you're going to say that he was immaculately conceived and the word became flesh at Nazareth, then you have to say that life begins at conception, right? I mean, that seems consistent. You don't always see that, but uh, I think we should try to be consistent. So um, yeah, just something interesting. You know, I, I we do talk a lot about Bethlehem and I'll talk about that later on because we did get to there as well a different day. But, you know, that is where we think like Jesus came into the world. And and it's true to a point, you know, but I do believe life begins at conception. So Nazareth, very important place if this is where uh, Mary was told that she had a son. So um, anyways, not to get political, but just something you know, it was something very prevalent in this church. And so I thought, you know, I'll, I'll bring that up. Um, there's a beautiful cathedral. Um, often, I, I like to visit cathedrals personally. Some don't love going. They feel like if they're not Catholic, then they have no business seeing them or, or celebrating them. I, I feel very differently from that. I'm not Catholic. Um, and definitely a lot of evil has been done in the name of Catholicism. I think they... Honestly, for lack of a better word, I think they bastardized scripture and the requirements of the church. And, and I think one day they're going to be held accountable for that. Um, that's really all I'm going to say about the negative aspect of the Catholic church. But I do think that there were also good people brought up under that system who really believed with their whole heart that the work they were doing for the church, they were doing for God. And so they tried to do their best. And this is consistent with what I read about the builders of these cathedrals. Um, this really just puts me in that mindset because these weren't like, these weren't always like bishops, priests, cardinals, popes. These were builders, artists, and they were offering what services they had to make something beautiful that they thought God would be pleased with. And even the ones aware of the financial toll they were putting on the poor that some of these cathedrals were built up with, 
sometimes they genuinely, or so it seems, thought that they were doing this for the poor to be able to connect with the heavenly. So I think even in times when you could look back and say evil was done, I think sometimes the people behind it, um, at least the builders, the people creating the art, really believed and had good motivation for building these things, thinking, you know, this is this is somewhere that the poor can come and connect with their God, and that's an important thing, so we're doing them a service. And I think um, there is there is an art behind this, and I, I do think you can see it even in the building um, of what they did. You go into these cathedrals, and intentionally, your eye is drawn to certain places, mostly upward in awe of heaven. And these are also centers for beautiful art depicting biblical scenes, which were honestly some of the primary ways the poor could even understand biblical stories because they were mostly illiterate. And so um, it almost, to me, it almost seems like cathedrals acted a tiny bit um, as like a midway between a synagogue and a modern church. I'm not saying that I would have gone to Catholic mass or like that would have been the right thing for me to do. But I'm saying as far as a building goes and it's, it's functionality in a synagogue, we think of it like a church because we're thinking through modern lenses, but it was really like a, like a town hall and it is where they had services, but it was also where they had books and scrolls and people would go to learn and they would go to gather as a community for different things, maybe meals. And so it was a lot more than just a gathering place for church services and the same is kind of true for um, all these ancient cathedrals that are just incredible uh, because we look at some of the stained glass or pictures on the wall or different reliefs done in marble or whatever. And we think, okay, well, that's just, you know, fanciful and kind of maybe gaudy a little bit. But in a lot of cases, this was the place that a person who couldn't read scripture would come to understand and get a picture in their head of what was happening in the biblical story. So now you could argue that that's wrong because the heads of the Catholic church were, you know, trying to keep scripture kind of veiled. So they were the only interpreters. That's true. But I do think, uh, some of the people that built these places were trying to do a good thing and trying to expose the general public to the story of the Bible, the awesomeness of God, the awe of God. So that's why I go to these places and I, I think they're amazing. And I think um, some of the tradition behind some of these cathedrals, specifically in Israel, um, is important, even if we're not 100% sure that this is the exact place that this exact thing happened. And I'll get into that in a second. Um, I still think that it's cool to see, at least from a tradition standpoint. So say what you will about that, but that's that's kind of... Um, where I stand. And all this to say, I still appreciate seeing cathedrals. And I think they're worth going to see, if nothing else, just for the effort people underwent to pay a certain respect to a site. Um, I do think it's a credit to the builders. Um, and I, I think also a credit to the people that truly believed these were the specific places um, that things happened. You know, these these were truly the historical sites of whatever events. Um, whether they are or not, I, I can't say always, but they believe that they were. And I, I think that is something. That's still a historical thing to go and witness and appreciate. Um, yeah, so my big concern at this place, because this was kind of the first, um, the first place that we were going to see that was connected to one of these cathedrals. And I wasn't sure how that merge would go. Like, how do you connect, how, how do you cover over archeological ruins and historical findings with a church and not somehow ruin, <laughs> ruin the ruins? I don't know how else to say that, but how do, you, how do you maintain the integrity of these historical sites if you're building a church kind of over it or amongst it. And I just wanted to see how that balance was. Cause this, this was my concern. I was like, man, this feels wrong. I, I'm much more concerned with the archeological site than I am the building or the church, even though I do appreciate the church. And so initially this felt too far to me. Um, 
until I walked into the building. And then I was actually pleasantly surprised. So you get to this church and there's a beautiful steeple. Uh, It's all like very white stone everywhere, very tall building. Um, It's got a statue of Mary. Well, statues of Mary pretty much everywhere. Um, And depictions of you know, an angel coming down and speaking with her on, on different levels of, of the church, this huge steeple, kind of like a, like a dark green color almost. And, um, it was hot, man. I'm going to say that in like every episode, it is always and perpetually hot. Um, but we're going to go into a church, so that wasn't a huge, huge deal. Um, but the steeples in like an octagon shape, like it comes up to a point, but the base of it is an octagon. And you go inside, you can see up through that steeple, which is really cool. And it looks, it's like a really cool blend of rustic and modern. And so I think that helped me to be able to digest like, you know, some of the antiquity mixed with some of the new. Um, But you walk in and it's just like a big open hall. And then off to the left, you know, up front obviously is like, like the altar area and everything where they would do services. And there's an upper floor as well, kind of more at the beginning of the steeple. And off to the left on the bottom floor, you can see there's a line, first of all, a huge line. And there's a tiny little structure made of stone. And you can tell where some of it's been built back up, like reconstructed, and you can tell what's original pretty clearly. That, that wasn't always clear in certain places, but here, uh, looking back at my pictures, it was it was fairly clear. And around it, obviously, you know, have all these, uh, like, Catholic instruments or, you know, just things that kind of set it apart as being very ritualistic. It's got um, candles everywhere, and it's got, like, a wrought iron gate around the whole thing. And it's kind of like, imagine if there was a shed outside and then someone decided they were going to build a house around the shed, you kind of have that sense of like, you would walk into the house and be like, Hmm, this belongs outside. And yet here it is. And so in, in one way, it's kind of like out of place. And yet in another way, because they've made it the focal point, um, of this church, uh, it kind of fits and the things they put around it don't necessarily compromise the structure they do kind of make it more cathedral-esque, and so it fits, and it doesn't fit. It's kind of this weird thing, and it's got this hovering, like, roof. Oh, man, I don't even know how to explain it. It's like a square roof that's hovering over top of the building, and it's kind of red red wood, and it's got, like, angels on it, and, you know, the I think it's probably Joseph and Mary with an angel in the middle talking to them both. Um, and this is supposed to be the site where an angel came down and spoke to Mary. So is it, that's, that's like the million dollar question. That's what I wanted to keep asking the entire time I was there, you know, and you enter these sites that are obviously to certain people, like they believe them to be holy sites and you can see very genuine expressions of faith here. Um, you know, I think to some people it made them a little bit uncomfortable because, they're a lot more expressive than we are in the Western world, um, particularly in my church, I would say. But uh, it didn't necessarily make me uncomfortable. I do think there are people being very, very genuine. Um, it's just a different style than I'm used to. And I would say the part that makes me uncomfortable is you can see some people where it almost seems as if they're worshiping a certain site or a certain relic or... Um, you know, like the stones themselves. And that that's a little bit odd. But here, I didn't necessarily get that sense as much as in other places. Um, but I did want to know, you know, you, you walk in these places, there's these people that are like spiritual pilgrims or whatever here on some journey, some soul finding journey to see these places that are important to their faith. And here I am like wanting to ask these questions like, is this even real? You know, like just a tinge of skepticism to kind of like, I don't even know how to explain it. It's not that I wanted to be skeptical. More than anything, I wanted to go to these places and be absolutely, utterly convinced that this was genuine and real and the exact thing. And, you know, I wanted to be excited about it, not just seeing fakes. You know, that's really what I didn't want. 
but I felt like I had to be skeptical in order to not just accept the evidence based on what bias I had, which is that I wanted it to be true, you know? So I went in each discussion with the guy just trying to be like, all right, well, I'm going to be a little skeptical here and then I'll see what you say. And then we can kind of, you know, if you push back on me, then maybe I'll believe it a little bit more. So that was kind of my mentality. Um, which turns out I didn't really need to be because our guide was fairly skeptical enough for everybody on some sites and others. He was very adamant, like this is legitimate, but you know, I've heard stories of people going to Israel and they, they said their tour guide would, um, rank things from like an A, B, and C rating of authenticity. An A would be like, we have no doubt this is 100% unequivocally real, genuine, you know, this is something you can hang your hat on. C being like, uh, it could be, you know, and we don't really know, but I can't say for sure one way or the other. And um, I guess you'd have some where it's like, absolutely not, this is not it. But that's a pretty hard claim to make as well. You've got to have good evidence to say something is not the right place too. Um, but in in Nazareth, where we are, it's um, it's an interesting. I would say it's more like a C rating, but it's a C rating with something that you know still was palatable to me. It didn't feel like I was seeing something fake. And the way the guide explained it to me was this, you know, because we walked. Uh, through this church, we were pretty quiet in the church. This All this conversation about, is it real? Um, is this authentic? Happened afterwards. But I asked him, I said, Don, um, I got to ask, like, what am I seeing? Like, is this real? What, you know, I'm taking pictures of these things, but it's like, is this just like a Catholic tradition or kind of a hoax the church put up? Like, what are we supposed to think about this? And he reminded me, he said, listen, Nazareth, is small. It's not a very big place. It's not a very nice place. It's not well built in a lot of cases. I mean, it's not poorly built. Like it's, it's not like everything just fell over and we have nothing left. We do have something left and that's, that's great, but there's not a lot. And so there might've been a few hundred people in the whole of Nazareth. And this is the only house left standing. And really it's not even the house. It's actually, um, it's like a doorway leading, like when you look, oh, I'll cover that in a second, actually. Never mind. But he said, this is the only house left standing, the only structure we have that would have been a place that people could live at. And so is this Jesus's home? I have no idea. He said, there's nothing here that says Mary, Joseph, and Jesus lived here. Um, some people would say, well, because it's the only house standing, it must be the home of Jesus because it's a miracle. And he said, I just, as an archaeologist, I can't say that. And he said, but it is one uh, first century home out of like the hundred or so that would have been here. So, you know, those are your odds. And to me, that that felt pretty good, actually. Um, one out of a hundred shot that Jesus would have lived in this home. And if he didn't live in it, he saw it, you know, like I'm assuming if this is truly a first century home, he said it does date to the time, then this would have been something Jesus passed by before. And that to me still connected me to the biblical story, even if, you know, the angel didn't come right here to speak with Mary and all that, like the church uh, of the Annunciation says happened, um, then it's still impressive. You know, this was the town of Jesus and I'm witnessing a first century house, even though it's surrounded by all this church, you know, this is a historical archeological site. And so, that was cool. Um, now I'm going to go kind of past it, if you will. Like I'll go into the church and then down. You kind of had to go past it with it on your left and then circle back around to get in line. Go down some stairs to the front of this like square stone building and then back up some stairs out. Um, and then we went upstairs to the steeple part. So I'm going to do that real quick. So we walked around, got in line. And there were these stairs going down that were, um, it was almost like a theater just made, you know, just of stairs. And so there was a, a nice orderly line though, but there's people taking pictures and um, man, just so many pictures being taken. But you walk past, as you get down to it, there's an iron uh, grate and you could take pictures through it or I could reach over it and take pictures. And I did. And basically what you have is not just the home itself, 
this would have been like the basement level. So this would have been, um, they had like, it's like if it got too hot, they'd put animals in here. Or if it got too cold, they'd put animals in here. At the basement level, it would kind of protect uh, from all kinds of weather. This is also uh, akin to the place that Jesus would have been born. Obviously, he was born in Bethlehem, so this isn't it. But there were these rooms. It's not like he was in the barn. You know, this this house that they had was kind of almost two-storied, but one story was underneath the ground. And it's this basement level, and they put the animals in there, almost like a cave, but a cave, you know, built by human hands. And so this is what we were seeing. And you can look down into this basement level, and then far off in the back, maybe like 30 feet or so, there are these stairs leading up. And those stairs would have led up to the main level of a home. So we're kind of under the ground at this point, which is why you had to go downstairs to get to it. And um, yeah, so inside this basement level of the home, um, there was, like I said, very, very obvious where they've built up and where it was original because they've got just like such clear, pristine bricks in some places and then some like rougher ones. It's like, okay, well, this is obvious. But they've got a table there with candles on it and flowers and a kneeler pillow. I'm not sure... Uh, I'm not sure people can go in there at some point or if maybe just a priest can to pray. I'm not sure, but I, there is a kneeler pillow right before the table. And um, there's also a hanging like incense candle thing. So that's all that was in there. It wasn't terribly impressive. Um, it wasn't unimpressive. I guess it's just like archaeologically, it was not that impressive. But to think that I'm looking at a first century home that Jesus might have walked past or even been in at some point, that was really cool. You know, one in a hundred shot that this could have been where he lived. And even if he didn't live here, how many homes, you know, if I'm growing up in a neighborhood, I've been in some homes, you know, my friend's homes. So perhaps he's been in there before. I think that's, that's pretty cool. So after that, um, we ended up going upstairs into the kind of steeple-ish area, kind of the base of the steeple, actually, more like the tower part of the steeple. And up here is where they have um, like a more fully-fledged church. You know, it's there's nothing necessarily archaeological about this top half, but it is beautiful, um, all in this octagon shape. And all around the walls, they have these murals of Madonna and Child. So Mary and Jesus, and they're all different. And I guess what happened is this church commissioned these works of art from different nations to kind of do a painting or a mural representative of their country's art style. So that was really cool. And they were not just different in style, but different in composition, because some of them just had Mary and no Jesus. Some of them had Mary, Jesus, and angels. Some of them had um, Mary and Jesus as like a boy. Some of them had him as a baby. And it was just really, really different uh, across the board. And I thought that was interesting. Um, the American one that I saw, you know, he our guide pointed it out, kind of reminded all of us a little bit of the Statue of Liberty. It was very geometric. Um, Mary was kind of silver and had all these shapes comprising her whole body. And so that was kind of cool. But there was also like um, more tribal looking paintings or there was, you know, Mary and Jesus as like classically Asian people. And that was interesting. So yeah, just all around this room, they've got these different murals. And I, honestly, each one truly was beautiful. Um, you know, in my church, we don't do a lot of, actually, we don't do any uh, depictions of Jesus. And we certainly don't venerate or worship Mary. Um, but from an artistic standpoint, these were beautiful paintings. So each one was really cool to look at. I kind of wish I had gotten pictures of all or most of them, but I didn't. I didn't even get pictures of many of them, to be honest. Um, but yeah, so that's what we saw up there. We didn't spend a whole lot of time up there because, like I said, there's not a lot of archaeology there. Um, but it was worth seeing just if you appreciate those you know, cathedral style things. And our guides kind of like throughout the trip, they kind of learned like we're not Catholic people. And, um, you know, they're guides. They don't know exactly what you specifically want to see. They're there to take you on a tour. 
And so, you know, they did. And they were really, really great with how they, I don't know, they could read a room really well and just be like, okay, they're interested in this, they're not interested in this, let's move on a little quicker from here, and we'll have more time there. So they did a great job. Um, and here we just, at the top of this church, we didn't really spend a ton of time. So then we left the church, and on our way out, he took us down to a lower level that was kind of underneath the church. And this is where all the actual ruins were of Nazareth. And so you can see, um, again, not much, but all the streets that Jesus would have walked on. And that was really cool. Even though we spent like five seconds there. Um, yeah, it's it's just really cool how they were able to, you know, they had their church but they didn't ruin anything. They didn't, they didn't mess with any of the archeological site so much that there's not something preserved there. And it's almost like this entire, you know, from our vantage, this entire church complex is on stilts over top of this archeological site. Um, with obviously the, the main site being this house basement structure, which would have been one of the only dwelling places left after this long from first century Nazareth. And, uh, yeah, so that's pretty much all we saw in, uh, Nazareth, but it was very cool just to connect, you know, this was our first kind of connection to, um, biblical Jesus, you know, even though at Sephora's we had some discussion about him, this was the place where the Bible speaks about this place in connection with Jesus Christ living here on this earth. And so that was, that was really, really neat and definitely worth seeing despite being a, a pretty quick stop along the way. Um, because like I said, archaeologically, there's not a lot here, even though spiritually it's a very important place uh, for Christians, I would say. Okay, so then after Nazareth, we, we got back on the bus and we had two stops left. We were going to go to Acre or Akko and Haifa. And uh, Haifa is kind of like a coastal town on Mount Carmel. We'll get there in a minute though. So we drove to Acre. And to get a, a little bit of a sense of where we were on the map, Nazareth is in the northern portion of Israel. Um, I would say south, uh, on the southern tip. If you were to go to the southern tip of Galilee and then go immediately west from there, kind of in the middle between Galilee and the Mediterranean, that's where Nazareth sits. So kind of in the middle of the, of the country, but in the northern part. And Acre is north of there. So you go right up the middle um, with Galilee would be on your right towards the towards the east and you go north and then you go straight over uh, to the west, uh, right up against the, the Mediterranean and there is Acre uh, or Akko. And it's interesting because when, when we're here, you know, often, especially in the beginning of this trip, I didn't really have a good orientation of where I was until much later in the trip. It wasn't until I got to southern Israel that I kind of started to realize where we were, where things were in northern Israel. Um, I wish I had kept a better track of that as we went, but, you know, such is life. But we went to Acre, and it's one of the farther north places that we ended up going. Um, and this was, you know, ah, oh man, to go from... Sephoris, which had very close uh, Jesus ties, and then Nazareth, which had incredibly close ties to Christ. Acre, to me, felt like a bit of a disappointment, even though it is not by any stretch of the imagination. But what happened in Acre, biblically, I mean, it's, it's in the Bible. The town of Acre, or Akko, um, it's also known as Ptolemaeus in the Bible, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. Um, it is mentioned but it's just not as drastically important as somewhere like Nazareth. Um, and so when you get there, there are places where you can kind of see the layers cut out of archaeological digs where, you know, they, they've clearly shown that biblical things did happen here. There is a first century layer, but, um, you know, I think even layers before that. But the one that they've chosen to preserve here is more the crusader layer because it's just a really, really well-preserved part of that history. And so, you know, again, not that that does not interest me any other time of the year, like more than so many other parts of history. I love the Crusader period. 
the Knights Templar is really interesting. You know, it, it is such a cool thing, but I'm in a biblical mindset and shifting into that crusader mindset was, I found it kind of difficult, but other people I know really, really got a lot out of it. Um, so the one thing we were really seeing in Acre or Akko is the Hospitaller Fortress. And I'm not going to lie, even though initially I'm thinking, well, this isn't really biblical. I'll get what I can out of it, but not, you know, what I get is what I get. This was a very impressive place. Um, this was just well built and interesting history and cool little places to climb around in. Um, the whole thing was was really, really neat. And the hospital or fortress um, was the fortress. I mean, man, this is going to sound so stupid to say, but it was the fortress of the hospitalers. And these hospitalers were known as the Order of the Knights of St. John. And so these are kind of like warrior monks and they would help pilgrims on their journey to the Holy Land. So they would protect them and care for them and um, give them as much ability to heal as possible if they could like bandage wounds or whatever. This was kind of a safe place for people to, to travel to. And the, the hospital or order would go out and they were warriors, but they were primarily used for protection and aid. So I like that mix. Um, just shy of like a warrior poet. I think that's pretty cool, but warrior protectors or warrior aides. And I, th I think that's, that's pretty cool. So we're there and, um, it's a huge, huge structure. Um, this is a, a port city, like I said, on the Mediterranean and, um, you know, anytime we're near the water, that's pretty cool. This place also has like connections to Napoleon. Uh, it's one of the few places that was able to turn him back from the water. So that's really neat. Uh, and everywhere in this whole fortress, I mean, it really does give you the sense of a fortress. Like you, it feels very well fortified, well protected, but there's these arches everywhere in a very almost, I want to say Arabic style, um, which I thought that was interesting. Just a lot of, uh, you know, different influence from different time periods. And we, so we go into this fortress and we, we saw everything there. I mean, he, the, uh, our guide, Idan told us everything. The, the reason this was kind of funny. The reason he said this place is so well preserved is that when the crusaders were eventually defeated and driven out of this place, um, the Muslim people that came in hated them so much that they refused to operate in the same area. You know, they didn't want to use these buildings at all. And so they filled them in with dirt, just completely buried them thinking they were kind of doing a disservice or like kind of a, a taunt to the people that had been here before, but actually ended up preserving it better than like any other uh, crusader site that exists, you know, cause a lot of people, when they would defeat a place, they'd either tear it down completely, just level it, or they would use it. They'd inhabit it and kind of restructure a little bit to make it their own. And in doing so pieces would be torn down. So then when you unearth it, it's kind of got too much of a mix of multiple people being there and, it's kind of hard to parse out which place is which place and hard to date at that point. Um, but this place, you know, they thought they were doing them, you know, a disservice by burying it, but it ended up preserving it better than anything. So that's why we have this, this fortress so well preserved. Um, and when we're in there, you know, our guide was talking about, um, he's talking about the history and everything. And then he says, okay, we're going to go ahead and go down to the crypt and this was news to me. I didn't realize we'd be going down into anything. I didn't even realize what it was when he said it, to be honest. And so we're we're walking along and he takes us off into this little like side door area and it just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. This little like hallway becomes a tunnel and man, I am cramped in there. Like the walls were wet and we're going downhill and I'm just like, man, this is like great preparation for um, Hezekiah's tunnel. Because honestly, I'd been nervous about that from the beginning. Like I'm a big guy, broad-shouldered, tall. I don't know, you know, I guess I'm just going to wait and see if they tell me I can't go in. And here we are in this one place. I'm like, man, this itself is tight. And he didn't say anything about, you know, he, he didn't, he knew me at this point. He had seen me, our guide, he'd seen me. And he didn't say like, oh, this is going to be tight. He didn't say anything. We just kind of walked in. And I personally thought it was really cool. Um, 
anything with the name Crypt in it just like sounds cool, I think. So that was neat to me. But, you know, it wasn't like a I'm thinking we're going to like catacombs or a tomb or something. I didn't really see any of that. It just kind of seemed like we walked through a tiny tunnel until we came out the other side of it. And then we were in other rooms of this fortress. But apparently there's a crypt somewhere either along the way or um, at the end of it. I I wasn't sure what that was. I was more focused on like, I hope this doesn't get any tighter because that's going to be tough. turns out it was fine. um, And Hezekiah's tunnel was actually a lot tighter than that. But that's a story for a different day. Um, We walked through this and it was kind of funny to me because I come out and everyone that doesn't like tight spaces that didn't realize we'd be going in there is not happy. You know, they're just like, I can't believe you didn't tell us that was going to be a tight place. I was claustrophobic in there. And they look at me and they're like trying to plead their case by using me as an example. Like, well, look at this guy. Can you imagine how he would have felt in there? That would have been miserable. He probably didn't want to go. And I'm just like, I thought that was really cool, actually. I mean, yeah, I had to duck and like not be afraid of getting my shoulders a little bit wet on the walls, but whatever. Like that was neat. That was cool. That was interesting. Felt like I'm you know, spelunking and seeing like secret hidden passageways in ancient crusader tunnels like that. I don't know. That to me was awesome. But a few people didn't like it. So from then on, they tried to be pretty clear about when something would be a tight place or when there was going to be a lot of steps. Even we had a lot of I wouldn't say we had a lot of complaints. Um, but when things like that happened, people wanted to be aware of what they were getting into in case they didn't want to do it. So But, you know, my mentality, I was like, I just want to do everything. So I didn't have any problem, but it was pretty tight. And it it was definitely uh, not like walking through some of the grander halls in that building. It was very small, but still very cool. Um, The last thing we did, we just walked through this big, you know, we went from a tiny tunnel into like a giant tunnel. And we just kind of walked through. He continued to talk with us. At the end of that tunnel, I thought it was pretty cool. There's this beautiful painting, probably maybe 30 feet high or something like that, maybe 35. And it's, um, I've, you know, I read a few books prior to going to Israel, not because I was going, but just I happened to be reading them. And they were, some of them were really, really detailed about some of the art that goes into um, some of these ancient sites, you know, and it's, it's up there for a reason. And we see it, you know, certain paintings we would see in a cathedral or carvings or, whatever, anything artistic, we look at it and it's like, yeah, it's kind of generally the same style as the other place we were. And I understand that there's elements that depict this thing versus that thing. So we know there's a difference, but we kind of gloss over it a little bit. And if you look closely, there's a lot of detail in some of these things and you can kind of pick up weird, I don't know, like weird questions can be raised if you look at certain things. So for example, one book I read was about the Ark of the Covenant and the whole theory that, you know, the Queen of Sheba and Solomon had a child and brought him back, or the Queen of Sheba brought him back to Ethiopia. So there's that whole story. And one person was like looking at these uh, Templar church carvings and was like, I'm seeing evidence of this in the carvings, but other people are just walking by. Like, why would this Queen of Sheba be carved into stone right next to Solomon and Peter and Moses and you know, there's a question there, but I would walk past it not knowing. And so I got to this painting and I thought, wow, that is beautiful. Like I just, it's huge, you know, first of all, but also like the color was well preserved and I'm sure it had been touched up, but I tried my hand at this, you know, I I don't know a lot about ancient paintings, but I, I tried my best to look close and see like, what am I witnessing here? Like, what is, what is the story being told? And one thing I noticed that I thought was pretty cool is this isn't uh, just a crusader fortress, you know, these are Templars, and that is a little bit different, you know, there's, there's a distinction there for sure. And the reason I knew that they were trying to depict, you know, that this was a Templar place, is there's a man, and he has what looks like, almost like the world in his hands, and he is measuring out the world, I'm assuming this is, you know, God, but he's measuring out the world with um, one of those uh, compasses, you know, where you would 
put one point down in the middle and then draw a circle out. So it's like God measuring the circumference of the earth and then drawing it out. And he's kind of forming all things. And that compass is like a very, very prominent Templar um, image. So I, I think that, I don't know, to me that was pretty neat. And uh, there's a lot of kind of lore that goes with that. Um yeah, so and, and the difference really is kind of just what I said before. Templars are crusaders, but they are members of an order dedicated to like the protection of pilgrims coming to the Holy Land. So they're not just pilgrims themselves. They are meant for protection of pilgrims. But there's a whole backstory of them that goes back to, um, you know, buildings by King Solomon. And that's a really cool history. So that that part of it I thought was very, very cool. And um, that was kind of the last thing we saw there. Uh, we gathered in the main hall at the end of the tour. And he told us that this hall would have been, he asked if, asked if we were familiar with the story of Robin Hood and how, you know, the reason this story happens is because there's like a tyrant king in place while King Richard the Lionhearted goes and fights the Crusades. And he says, this is where that king, King Richard the Lionhearted would have been. Like he went to this place in Akko. So that was also really cool. You know, I've grown up reading, watching, listening to the story of Robin Hood. So that was a cool, like, almost like a, a myth brought to life with true history. And I knew it was historical uh, to a point, like the setting at least. But to see the place that King Richard would have been, that, that was pretty cool. And so that's the last thing we did in Acre. Um, the last thing I'll say about that as we're kind of driving out of this city is about the name of the place. So um, Acre, Akko, Ptolemaeus, where does this all come from? How do we, you know, how do we track this name and what do we call it today? Um, so originally this place was called Aki in Greek, meaning cure. And the myth surrounding that is uh, Heracles found these herbs here to heal wounds. It was kind of a miraculous place which is also interesting um, as to why the hospital or fortress was here. You know, this is a place of medicine and they chose to put it on this mytho-Greek site. So I think that's kind of interesting, maybe a little bit of syncretism going on there, maybe just tradition, maybe just a coincidence, I don't know. But it went from Aki to uh, Josephus, later calling it Acre, A-K-R-E, but prior to this time, when the Greeks were in charge of this area, um, not only did they call it Aki, but they, when after uh, Alexander the Great passed on, um, you know, the, his kingdom was divided into his general, under his general's control, one of them being Ptolemaeus, and this place is called Antiochia Ptolemaeus. So after Ptolemy, uh, this place was kind of renamed Ptolemaeus. And that's why we see it uh, as Ptolemaeus in the book of Acts when, just in passing, it says that Paul came here and uh, was there for one day and visited the Christian brethren in this area. So we do have we do have it mentioned here as Ptolemaeus in the Bible, but originally it would have been Aki, meaning cure or acre, and that's why today we have it as acre or Akko. And I think Akko is the, the current name that you would see on all the signs everywhere. So that's just what it's called in the, the current world. But that's kind of how that name, you know, we almost went Greek to different name in Greek to bringing it back to the original Greek with Josephus, you know, from Aki to Acre. And now today we still remember that it's Ptolemaeus, but we still kind of follow that ancient structure of Akko or Aki or Acre. So that's why we've got the name. And even, it's funny, even when I talk about this place to people that were there, we're like, remember that day we spent in Acre or Akko? Or, and we just kind of go through a list of names like like a parent calling one of their children and going through all the names that they've ever named any animal or child. So that's kind of what happens with this place. But Akko is the, the current name, um, at least in the Hebrew pronunciation. Okay, so we are getting close to the end of this day. I'm definitely going to finish it today. So that's awesome. Um, after uh, Akko, we were, it was running late. You know, we were, we had spent a lot of time in certain places over others and we weren't 
sure how much longer we were going to have. And it, you know, dinner on hotel time is very specific. So we were out and, you know, it's getting close to dinner time. We've got quite a long drive back to the hotel uh, in Tel Aviv. So they gave us the option. They said, okay, well, we have one place left. It's Haifa and it's south of Akko. Are we going to go there? Or are we going to go back? And we just kind of took a poll. People raised their hands. More people wanted to go with the potential for missing dinner. Um, and some people wanted to go back. So we took some from the other bus onto our bus. And then a few people ended up just going home. And really, Haifa wasn't, you know, we didn't even really do anything. We just kind of drove through it. Um, it's on Mount Carmel on, on the slopes of Mount Carmel. And so that was a reason I wanted to go. I wasn't sure how much time we were going to get on Mount Carmel. So just to see it, even in its modern form, I thought, all right, well, like I said, I'm going to say yes to seeing as many things as possible. So I don't care if I miss dinner or not, we're, we're going to go. So we stayed on the bus and our bus was the one that decided to go. And really, I, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure why people didn't because Yes, I mean, missing dinner wouldn't be great. You know, it's it's nice to keep up your strength after walking in the heat all day. But you're kind of already north and you have to go south anyway. So it just depends on if you're going to go beeline south to the hotel or like, you know, 15 minutes down the road south and then beeline for the hotel. So it really wasn't terribly far out of the way. Um, and I'm not sure that like I we ended up getting dinner, so it was fine. It was just, they weren't sure. So I don't know. I wish more people had taken the chance. We had just all gone, but really all we did there, there's not a lot to say. All we did was drive there. He told us about things on the street. You know, this is a very modern town, Haifa. It's got um, just a lot of businesses and buildings and young people and things to do. And so there's, there's very little to see here, historically speaking, at least in this specific city. But the idea was to go up to the top of Carmel, looking down Haifa, because Haifa's kind of on the slope. And so looking down on Haifa and over into the Mediterranean. And that's what we did. And we just kind of took a picture up there and then left. Um, the notable thing that we saw there was the Baha'i Gardens. And it's if you haven't heard of Baha'i before, it's a faith that's kind of about universalism, like all faiths are valid and part of one greater faith. And, you know, we're, we're all kind of one in, in unity and spirit as the humankind and all of our faiths lead to some sort of salvation. It's a rather, it's kind of a newer uh, religion, I would say newer in the sense that it's not as old as Christianity or uh, Islam or Judaism, which aren't themselves, uh, in the forms that we see them today aren't quite as old as like Buddhism or Hinduism, even though, you know, I believe that God's way permeated all of that all the way back to Adam and Eve. So, um, yeah, I would say it's new in comparison to a lot of world religions. Um, there was a story he told us about the leader of the Baha'i faith that, you know, he kind of came to the table with a bunch of world religion leaders. And he said, you know, I, I hear you guys are looking for a Messiah and I just, I want to put myself up for consideration. And they kind of laughed and like he, he did it in good faith. He wasn't really trying to, I don't know, I guess the way the guide painted it, he wasn't trying to be like making an assumption or being rude. He was just like, you know, I'm the leader of this religion that says all religions are valid. Like I am the person you're looking for. It didn't seem to be as egomaniacal as other people who have claimed to be Messiah. More like, can you guys just work with us? And didn't go well. I mean, there's not, Baha'i is not like a militant religion by any means, so no one really has a huge problem with them. But um, yeah, all the major world religions accepting that this is a uh, coming of Christ with this leader of the Baha'i faith, that obviously wasn't going to happen and go over so smoothly. So, but the gardens they have there are beautiful. I mean, it's like stair-stepped terraces with lots of greenery. Um, and then this beautiful like gold and white building up at the top um and it just is so high up there and we just we passed it from the bottom and looking up man it's like the precision of that place the beauty of that place in the midst of all these like 
high rises and buildings and flashy lights. This was kind of a very serene, almost, uh, it almost kind of felt like an Indian inspired building. Um, not quite Taj Mahal esque, but something like that, you know, very, very Asian in influence, but just very peaceful, very beautiful, very open compared to the tightly packed buildings around it. And so we passed that from the bottom, drove all the way up uh, the hill. And if you've ever been to like San Francisco, you know, they have that zigzag, like the most crooked road in America or in the world or whatever. And I've driven up that with my family before, and it's really crooked. This felt worse. I'm not, I don't think it was worse, but when you're on a giant tour bus and the streets are like, it almost seemed like 20 feet wide and there's other cars going like crazy and you're trying to climb this hill. It, man, our driver, shout out to him. Uh, he was really, really an awesome guy. His name was Atef, really, really nice guy. We got to be friends with him uh, throughout the trip as well. But he did an excellent job maneuvering our way up the top of Mount Carmel. Then we got out and took some pictures. There's a beautiful view of the Mediterranean down into the Baha'i Garden. So now we are standing above the gardens, above the the building they have there that I said wasn't quite Taj Mahal-esque, but something like that. And just looking down on this beautiful gardens into the Mediterranean. And from there, we just drove home drove or drove back to the hotel we did make it in time for dinner, which was nice because it was a long day. Um, even though this day was longer than the days we had had before this, I didn't feel quite as worn out. You know, I was getting used to the heat, um, getting used to the walking, getting used to when we were eating and when to fill up my water and take their advice seriously on bringing water everywhere. So I was starting to feel like much more confident in the trip itself and much more excited about the days to come. So that's all I have today. We've gone quite a long time, but I know a lot of people have been waiting on this episode. So um, here you go. And I hope you've enjoyed it. Up to this point, we were a small group of touring people. We had a lot more people join us after this day. And so um, actually, I think there might be one more day before everyone joined us. I'll have to look back at that. I'll talk about it next time. But that's all I have for this day. Finally, we completed one of the, you know, the first touring day in Israel. So um, hope this was enjoyable for you and hope you're excited for the next episode. I'll talk to you guys later.